Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 56. In this passage, we witness those words that we recently recited in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. So Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 56. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were, hang, hang, who, who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our, of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, 
returned home beating their breasts and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council and a good, righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write his word upon our hearts this morning. Well, when you think of Christianity, what do you think of? One of the things that may come to our minds is the cross. The cross has served as the symbol for Christianity from the, the, uh, the beginning of the church, the early church. When we think about redemptive history as it unfolds for us in Scripture, we see this narrative, the cross of Christ, serving as one of the focal points. Think about how many, in how many ways the the cross is foreshadowed for us in the Old Testament through death, through bloodshed, through sacrifices, through the priesthood, through the temple system. When you think about the apostles and as they write in their epistles, think about how often they draw our attention to the centrality of the cross. Indeed, the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. For I decided to, to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now the Apostle Paul says in a number of occasions that we are called to imitate Him insofar as He imitates Christ. Therefore, Paul was a cross-centered individual. So I believe it's safe to assume that we as the church are called to be a cross-centered people. We are to recognize the importance and centrality of the cross of Christ. We are to respond appropriately to the meaning and significance of the cross of Christ. We are called to be a cross-centered people. Now, before we dive in and, 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 and talk about what this means, I'd like us to first reflect upon the people in, in this passage before us who respond in the opposite manner. Rather than responding appropriately to the cross, they scoff at the cross. In this passage, we come across many responses to the cross. We do come across a number of negative examples. We come across the Jewish religious leadership who scoff at the cross. 
as do the Roman centurions and that, and that criminal who is hanging next to our Lord. You'll see that the Jewish leaders, when they witness Jesus on the cross, they say, he saved others. Let him save himself. I thought he was the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one of God. Now, the Roman centurions are, are, are really saying the same thing, except they're, they're speaking about Jesus from their vantage point, as those outside of Judea, Judaism. He saved others. Why isn't he saving himself in this moment of dire need? I thought he was the king of the Jews. Notice how similar, how similar the one criminal's response is to these, to these responses. We read that the, the, the one criminal next to Jesus rails upon Jesus saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Save us. They, they do not understand how Christ, this Christ who claims to be the Messiah of God, claims to be the King of the Jews, who has previously exercised power and authority over nature, calming the storm, authority and power over death when he raised Lazarus, authority and power over disease and sickness as he healed so many people. And yet, at this moment, when his life is on the line, he does nothing. This echoes what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and, and foolishness or folly to the Greeks. What he means is that for, for the Jews, and we see this here in the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the cross was a stumbling block. They could not understand how the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah of God, would willingly subject himself to a divine curse. That made no sense in, in their mind. They, they, they did not want to mix these two ideas of the Messiah and divine curse. It was a stumbling block. But for the Greeks or for the Gentiles, those outside of Judaism or Christianity, looking in, this religion seemed to be a head-scratcher. What is attractive, inspiring about a religion whose focal point is centered upon a seemingly weak human being who dies a public, humiliating, and shameful death? How is that inspiring? It's folly. It's foolishness. This doesn't tickle my philosophical minds, the Greeks of, of, of Paul's day would say. Now, before we continue on and consider what it means to be a cross-centered people, it's helpful to, to reflect upon how, how we live in the midst of a culture and society who also scoffs at the cross of Christ. We come across many people who, who see the cross as a stumbling block. The cross does proclaim an unbelievably good message of Christ's salvation, but it also is offensive. It says that we all are in a predicament that's far worse than any one of us can possibly imagine. It's offensive. It tells us as autonomous individuals living in the West, that we can't do it ourselves. 
that we are helpless. It's a stumbling block. But it's also folly. It's foolishness to the modern mind. You're telling me that a Jewish man lived, died, and rose from the dead, and his life has implications for me today, living almost 2,000 years later? This is folly. It's foolishness. I can't prove this by the scientific method. Seems like an outlandish, grandiose fairy tale. We live in the midst of a culture, a society, that scoffs at the cross in much the same way that people scoffed at the cross when Jesus himself was dying. Now, of course, this presents a number of challenges, living in the midst of this, this sort of culture and society. But it also presents some opportunities. It presents the opportunity to grow deep roots into this message of the cross of Christ. It provides the opportunity to really know what we believe and why we believe it. And one of the drawbacks of only being in a community where everybody believes exactly the same thing, every sphere of your life, is that it's very quick, it's easy to become an inch deep and a mile wide. We're never really challenged upon anything that we believe. However, when we are rubbing shoulders with people who scoff at that which we hold most dear, we're either going to get swept away or we are going to grow deep roots into this message of Christ and him crucified. So yes, there are challenges, but there are opportunities. Opportunities to grow deep roots. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be a cross-centered people? Well, before we can consider what it means to center upon the cross, we first need to consider how does Luke define the cross in this passage? So look with me in, in verses 23, or chapter 23, verses 44 through 45. Luke tells us that it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Luke here is defining for us the significance and message of Christ and him crucified. What does Luke say happened when Jesus died in that Roman crucifix? The temple, uh, the, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Now this curtain likely was the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And that most holy place was the place where the Ark of the Covenant had resided. It was a sacred place. So sacred was that place that only the high priest could enter that place, and he but once a year. Now this temple system for the Old Testament Jews in Israel of old would have taught them at least two things. First, it would have taught them that God is holy and they are sinful. God is holy and they are sinful. And number two, it would have taught them that they cannot draw near to God's most holy presence as he dwells here on this earth. There was a curtain. There were many barriers that separate the average Israelite from God's most holy place. 
So what this is symbolizing, Jesus' death, which tears this curtain, what this is symbolizing is that through the flesh of Christ, we have access to God's most holy place. Now, the access that we are granted is not access to an earthly temple or sanctuary that dwells in Palestine or will one day dwell in Palestine. The access that we are granted is to God's heavenly throne room. We have to remember that the earthly sanctuary was merely a copy of the heavenly temple where God's actual throne exists. So through the flesh of Christ, we have the right and privilege to boldly approach God's throne of grace with no need of an earthly mediator or priest. Cyrene carries Jesus' cross to that place of execution. Now this likely was because Jesus himself was too weak to carry his cross and therefore Simon of Cyrene uh, carried it in his place. This passage then, we have this living illustration of Simon of Cyrene carrying a cross following Jesus. Recall Jesus' words earlier that he gave to his disciples. A disciple is one who is to pick up his cross daily and follow him. What we have here then is the cross as a symbol of that mindset of humility which Christ himself exemplified, which we are to emulate. Think of Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Christ Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Or the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, that we all are to consider the needs of others as more significant than ourselves. Paul says, have this mindset, this mindset of humility among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And who is Christ Jesus? Well, Christ Jesus is one who who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself or humbled himself by taking upon himself a human nature, the mindset of a servant, and humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, the mindset of humility which drove Christ to the cross is given to us as an example to emulate. And so the cross, the message of the cross, is both this message about how we can have access to God and His heavenly holy of holies, and it gives us uh, an example to emulate. To put it another way, the cross is both law and gospel. It gives us an example, and it proclaims that declaration of good news of how we are right with God. Well, this is the the message of the cross that Luke gives us in this passage. Now, what does it mean for us to be a people centered upon that cross? Or put it another way, what does it mean to properly understand and respond to this message of the cross? Now, what I would like to do is to consider uh, a passage in the book of Hebrews. Now, the author to the Hebrews makes this same point that Luke makes about how Jesus' death 
tears that curtain. However, the author to the Hebrews makes a number of applications or tells us explicitly how we are to center upon the meaning of that cross. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, the author to the Hebrews says this. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Notice what the author to the Hebrews said there. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places through the flesh of Christ, that is to say through the curtain, Christ's death tore that curtain so that we can have confidence, confidence to enter the holy places. To call upon God who is in heaven as our Father. Now the author of Hebrews goes on to, to speak about how we are to respond then to this reality. And he, he, he directs our attention to a number of things. He says that we should have hearts that are, that are filled with the assurance of faith. He says that we are to hold fast our confession of hope without wavering. What I would like us to focus on particularly, though, are, are two references that the author to the Hebrews makes in this passage. He says that one of our responses is, is to draw near. To draw near, and he goes on to say in verse 25 of this passage, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. The author of Hebrews is, is referring here to corporate worship. That's what... Uh, the commentators of, of Hebrews believe is being said here, is being referenced here. There are some in this congregation who are neglecting Lord's Day corporate worship. And the author is saying that's incompatible with a confession or profession of what Christ has done by tearing that curtain. One of the ways then in which we respond appropriately to the cross, one of the ways in which we center upon the cross is by drawing near to God in moments like this in corporate worship. Now this reference to drawing near is another way to refer to communion with God. Now we should recognize that there are many ways to have communion with God in this life. Many good ways. You can do it through individual prayer, individual Bible reading, family devotions. You may listen to good podcasts or the Bible in audio form. You may even take a hike in nature and enjoy this creation, particularly how this creation testifies and proclaims the glory and greatness of our God. You can enjoy Christian fellowship with friends and family. You can gather on Sundays in moments like this to hear the word proclaimed and partake of the sacraments. These are all ways in which we can draw near to God and have communion with Him. However, not every form of drawing near to God is created equal. Think about this in terms of your human relationships. Let's say that your spouse is traveling for work for a few weeks, uh, months maybe. Let's say you live a long ways away from family, loved ones. There are many ways in which we can communicate to people who live a long ways away. You can write written letters. This allows you to communicate through 
through, through words with other people. You can send text messages or emails, which again allows you to communicate through written words. Yes, it might be a, less, a little less personal, but you can communicate back and forth much quicker. Well, we also can pick up our phones and call people and not only communicate through the, the medium of words, but we can hear their voices, which is a heightened form of communication than mere, uh, than mere writing of a letter or, or an email. Furthermore, in the age of the iPhone, we can FaceTime most people, which allows us not only to communicate through words, not only to hear the other person's voice, but we can see their facial expressions and their body language. Many ways to communicate with other human beings, but not every form of communication is created equal. I imagine that no one here would wish to go to an age in which the only way in which we can communicate with people is through the use of, of written letters. It's a great blessing that we do have phones and with just a, a push of a, the sliding of a, a screen, we can see someone who's across the country. In the same way, there are many ways in which we can have communion with God, but not every form is created equal. Thus, what the author of the Hebrews is telling us in Hebrews chapter 10 is that the FaceTime of divine communion with God is corporate worship. Those other forms are, are good, Shouldn't neglect them, but the FaceTime of divine communion with God is corporate worship. That's the most important way in which we draw near to the throne of grace. So let me ask you, do you have as high of a view of Lord's Day corporate worship as the author to the Hebrews does? If I were to ask you before this sermon to, to make a list what are some of the main ways in which we respond to the cross? How high on that list would corporate worship be? Do you have as high of a view of corporate worship as the author of the Hebrews does? Would other people who look at your life see you as an individual, or you as a family, as, as, as people who prioritize moments like this? Would they call your family a churchly family who prioritizes Sundays and the gathering of God's people. What implications do you think this has upon our level of commitment to a local church in our community? Do you think this pushes us in the direction of being one foot in, one foot out, or being two feet in a particular local church? These are the sort of questions that we need to wrestle with if we want to take seriously what Luke and the author of the Hebrews is telling us. One of the main ways in which we center upon the cross of Christ is not neglecting meeting together, but drawing near on Sundays during times of corporate worship. Now, I would imagine that there would be no disagreement in this room when it comes to how we, we all can view the church in one perspective, and it looks weak. It looks marred with division, fractures, immorality, even abuse. Now, if we stay in that perspective too long, it's very easy to become disillusioned. I don't want to be within 50 miles of a local church. But what do we do? What do we do when we hear an ethical commander imperative that's difficult 
to stomach or hear. The author of Hebrews clearly has a high view of the local, physical, embodied, gathered church. What do we do when it's difficult to hear this when we have a whole past history and ba of, of battle scars from the local, embodied, gathered church? Do we disregard it and say, I want to focus on, on, on the, the imperatives that, that I like to hear or that are easy to obey? Do we just pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and try harder? No, remember, we're law gospel people. We go back to the gospel. There's no hope of us obeying the difficult commands of God if the gospel is not what's putting wind in our sails. So think about the cross when you are in those dark moments. Jesus Christ did not die and is not currently interceding, praying, sympathizing, and preserving an anonymous, disembodied church that exists somewhere out there. Christ died and is presently interceding, preserving, and praying for a physical, embodied, gathered church. If this is Christ's attitude for this weak, rebellious, and sinful bunch, how can we turn our back on it? This is the sort of logic that Luke and the author of Hebrews is giving us. We need to go back to the gospel, and all the gospel put that needed wind in our sails so that we can have the same view of, of moments like this as the author to the Hebrews is commending us to have. Well, so far we've, we've defined what the cross is. We've looked at how one of the main ways in which we center upon the cross or respond appropriately to the cross. But what does it mean for us to be a cross-centered people? Or to put it another way, what does it mean, uh, what, what kind of community does the cross create? Notice again the types of responses that we have here in this passage of, in Luke's gospel. We not only have negative responses to the cross, but we also have a number of positive responses. We, we learn that uh, the other criminal who's crucified next to Jesus, he professes faith in our Lord. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom, and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. We also come across that Roman centurion who, who witnesses these events and says, surely he is innocent and praises God. We come across Joseph of Arimathea, a Jewish council member who did not join in condemning Jesus before Pilate, and he prepares the tomb for our Lord. We come across those women who've been following Jesus from Galilee, preparing the spices for Jesus' body. What unites a condemned criminal, a Roman soldier, a Jewish council member, and Jewish women? the cross of Jesus Christ. I would imagine that these individuals would not have occupied the same, the same places in society in the first century. But what unites them in this passage is the cross of Jesus Christ and their appropriate response to that cross. I believe that this foreshadows for us how, uh, foreshadows for us the type of community that the Son of God creates, defends, and preserves in the new covenant. A community that's not just Jew, but also Gentile. A community that's not just males, but females. A, a community that's not just of the rich, but of the poor. 
as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Now this week I, I came across a term uh, that a number of authors put forward in a, in a book that I was reading. And this term that's used, which I think is helpful, is a gospel plus community. Now what they mean by this is that it's tempting for the church, really in every age, to find the basis of their unity in the gospel plus fill in the blank. The gospel plus a church of white-collar professionals or blue-collar workers or a particular political stripe or on a particular side of a culture war of a particular educational philosophy. So really the basis of our community is not just the gospel or the cross, but it's the gospel or the cross plus fill in the blank. Now it's not wrong to have community with people who share common interests with us uh, in, in, our, in our common lives throughout the week as we disperse into our neighborhoods. But what unites us together on Sundays, what unites us together as fellow members of the body of Christ, is the gospel, is the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what unites us. It's very tempting for us to drift into a gospel plus view of the church and the community. But notice here, what unites a Roman centurion, a condemned criminal, and, and, the, and, and the rest of the group that I had recited, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what unites us as a new creation community. Now, of course, we do have to borrow from the world of common grace. We have to have a shared language so that we can even communicate on Sundays. But we do that in order to foster worship, not to add another requirement to belong to the church of Jesus Christ. And so, in what ways does this theme challenge your view of the church and her community? In what ways are you tempted to view the church as a gospel or cross plus community? Well, Congregation of Christ, in this passage, we encounter those words that we recite in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. And here we are called to be a people. Not individual, a people. A people who share a common vision and desire to center and respond appropriately to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 